Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Happy Wednesday, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw, and this is a brand new episode of I've Got a Secret. Robert Greene is an author and speaker known for his books on strategy, power, and seduction. He has written five international bestsellers, gaining strong followings within the business world, Washington, D.C., and even among some of the biggest musicians in the industry, including Jay-Z, Drake, and 50 Cent. His strategies are so effective that some U.S. prison systems have even banned his books. Robert speaks frequently on the topics of business and self-discovery, but I am excited to have a conversation that touches on some of the more nuanced elements of his teachings, seduction, relationships, and keeping the spark alive. This is The Secret to Seduction. So this is going to be such a fascinating discussion, Robert. I am so happy. Can you first give the listeners a quick background on your expertise? I know most of your books have a common thread through them. Well, um, essentially, I started writing books when I was rather late in life, when I was about 38. Prior to that, I'd worked in journalism. I'd worked in Hollywood. I lived all around the world doing various different jobs. And then it finally struck gold with my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, which came out in 1998. That was my first big break. And since then, I've written six other books kind of related to the first book, but not, not everything. They're not like sequels or anything. So then I did The Art of Seduction. I'm fascinated by this element of human psychology that, that people rarely explore, which is sometimes a little bit of the darker side of human relationships and a little bit of the darker side of human nature. So I've written about seduction, a book called The Art of Seduction. I wrote a book about strategies and war strategies and how they apply to life. I did a book with 50 Cent about the power of being fearless in life. I did a book called Mastery, which is all about how to become a complete master in whatever you do. And then my prior book, The Laws of Human Nature, which is sort of the ultimate book on how to decode people's behavior and have a better sense of what they're really thinking about you. And then I have a new book out called The Daily Laws, which is kind of a calendar version of all of my different books. Ooh, wow. I am so fascinated by all of your books. I love them. I love your theory, everything. So it's really exciting to be speaking with you today. So what is your personal definition of power? Well, you know, we think of the word power and you think of like big politics and business, kind of these large forces controlling the world, often a little touch of evil to it. And I have a completely different conception of power. I bring it down to the level of the individual. And I make the case that as human beings, the way we're wired in our nature, we cannot stand sensations of powerlessness. If you think of your daily life and those moments where you feel like you have no ability to influence or, or you know, have any effect upon your children, your spouse, your colleagues, your boss, that's the most miserable sensation of all. 
you're like completely helpless against all these forces in the world. And life, let's be honest, can be rather difficult and harsh and competitive out there. So power is this sensation that you have a degree of control, that your world that you live in is, has, can expand. That you can expand your influence over people, over your children, over all those other forces, and that you don't have that sensation of helplessness, which I think, I think lead to a lot of neuro neuroses and other kind of mental illnesses. So that's how I define power. I agree. I, I think to have personal power is very positive. That's not to say that it can't be used in a negative way. It's an True. instrument. It's a tool. And some people use it for nefarious purposes. I mean, I, but it depends on your character and who you are, but it can definitely wow. be a tool for great good in this world. Yeah, that's so true. And is it true that your books are designed to give the underdog a shot as opposed to writing for the power hungry? Well, um, you know, the power hungry are obviously attracted to this book, but I maintain that people, I think that maybe 5% of the, of the population out there are true sharks, people that we would consider power hungry, manipulative, even, you know, um, antisocial to some degree. And they're the ones that can be very difficult. But most of us are actually nice, are actually a bit naive. We don't really, we don't really understand toxic people. We get involved with them like great narcissists, et cetera, because we trust their appearances. We're not being skeptical about people. And then we get in trouble. We get sucked into all these emotional dramas and things that just drain us of all of our creative energy. So my books are really on the side of the underdog of people who don't really understand the toxic people out there, how political games are endemic to human nature. You know, you enter the work world out of college and suddenly you're struck by all this kind of game playing and egos and things. It catches you off guard and you can make lots of mistakes. I wanna help prevent you from making kind of classic mistakes. I love that. You know, I can remember when I was just newly married to my husband. We've been married 45 years. And, and wow, I can... congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 45 years? Yes, 45 years. You, to... <laughs> you don't, I'm sorry, but you don't look like you could be married for 45 years. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the amazing. listeners don't, don't, can't see me, but I'm waving you on. I'm like, go ahead and say it, please. <laughs> no, I'm just incredible. kidding. But thank you for that compliment. But yes, we've been together almost, well, over 48 years, but I can Whoa. remember being so naive and saying things to him like, I thought she was so nice. Why would she say that to right. me? I can't believe she did that. He goes, that's because you're nice. You're kind. You would never do something like that. You'll right. see. <laughs> That's but right. It's true. Right. Kind-hearted, nice people with manners cannot understand when they meet someone evil. <laughs> and a lot of people who are more creative or sensitive, who are artist types, they're often the most naive of all. And they, you know, that kind of aspect, the business aspect of their industry, musicians, filmmakers, they're the ones that often suffer the most. And I really, really empathize with them. And I want to make it so... Sometimes in life, you have to learn how to play defense against these types of people. And that's what a lot of my books are about. I love that. What are your thoughts on your books being banned from some prisons? Well, it's interesting because I get email. Earlier on, I got a lot of emails from prisoners who kind of explain the situation. And American prisons, compared to like other countries in Europe, for instance, 
are, are incredibly brutal. They're the most brutal animalistic environments on the planet. And sometimes you're thrown into these worlds and you don't expect, you, you, you obviously you committed a crime, you did something wrong, but you're not like a career criminal, which is a great percentage of the people in our prisons. And you're thrown into this world where it's absolutely brutal. It's dog eat dog. And you're not expecting, and a lot of it are mind games and psychological games that prisoners are playing on you, that wardens are playing on you, et cetera. And it is, it is harsh. And so they, they congregated to my book early on. They found that I would get emails from them saying this, this book saved my life. It helped me defend myself against this person and that person, et cetera. And then I think people in the prison system saw how popular the book was. They saw that the word power is in the title and they go, this isn't a good thing for our prisoners to have. We don't want them to be empowered. We don't want them to be thinking independently. We want them to be incredibly submissive. I don't think they understand my book because it's not about taking over a prison and becoming some power hungry person in a system. It's about learning how to defend yourself. But seeing the title and seeing how popular the book is, I think that had a big influence on it. Wow. It's a shame, really. Yeah. Seduction is such a fascinating topic. When speaking about that topic, you separate all people into different categories of seducers. I think it's interesting to promote the idea that everyone has their own thing. Yeah. I mean, the thing about seduction is it's, it's, a def- it's an art. That's why I call it the art of seduction. So if, and this is a book about men and women, gay and straight, everybody. I'm not, it's not about male seducers because half the stories are about female seductresses. But the thing is, it's an art. And if you're too obvious a seducer, if, if you obviously are cold and calculating, which is classically more how the male seducer is, but some women can be like that. People see through you and it's not very effective, right? So to give people strategies of seduction, which I do in the second half of the book, can almost work against you if people can kind of see that you're strategizing. So I maintain that you have to have a kind of naturalness to it. It has to be something that seems as part of your personality, part of your character. It's not like you're trying. It's just who you are. So I maintain that there are these kind of nine quintessential archetypes of seduction. Um, The first two are just male and female. So the siren is only a woman and the rake is only a man. But the other six or seven, you can be men or women. And I maintain that every single person out there has one of these qualities, is naturally one of these character archetypes. And I want you to be aware of it. I want you to see why it is part of your personality and how you can maybe use it to greater advantage and give the people the impression that you're just so natural at this. It's part of your character. You're not a cold, calculating seducer. You're just naturally very charming or or seductive. So that's sort of the point of that. Wow, I love this. And there are different seduction types that just don't mesh, correct? Because that's an important part of finding the correct romantic partner. Yes. I mean, so for instance... Um, the siren, which is the the most primal seductress, the I think I maintain it's the original form of seduction, was the female type who was trying to find power through kind of sexual energy before women had any real power in this world. And I maintain that a true siren 
could seduce anybody because that's the power they have. And then the equivalent of that is the male rake, a man who is so interested in women, he's so attuned to them, so attentive, but he's never interested in just one woman, right? It's always, it's gotta be dozens. And he could seduce any woman on the planet if he's truly a rake. But the other types, you have limitations for them, right? So if you're kind of more of an introspective intellectual type, you have to understand that your power of seduction is not going to reach women who, or, or men, if that's your thing, who are also, who are incredibly um, extroverts, right? Or who are, in, who are much more physical than you are because you're mental. So perhaps if you're more of the intellectual bent, you have to find targets, people to seduce who are more susceptible to that kind of approach. So there are limits to it. And then I give in the book, in the middle part of the book, I give the types of people that you can seduce and what fits naturally with each of the different types. So you don't waste your time, you know, seducing the wrong type of person. Wow. That's so interesting. Well, does this seduction type apply to all categories, romantic, professional, et cetera? Yeah, that's a good question. So the book isn't just about sexual seduction. I mean, that, that's a, a big a component of it, definitely. But it's also about social seduction. It's also about political seduction. It's also about marketing and public relation type seduction. So when you're in the office, it's not that you're going to be you're going to use the overt kind of sexual seductions because that's not appropriate. But there are elements of understanding other people's psychology. Seduction is the art of giving pleasure to people. When you give people pleasure, they're much more open to your influence, right? Whereas normally people are very defensive and very resistant to your to to, to your influence. But when you give them a pleasurable feeling, when you make them feel like they're the star of the show, and you give them this kind of focused attention, they tend to open up to you in a way that they normally wouldn't, right? So in the office situation, having these skills of being a great courtier, of learning the power of charm, et cetera, can be very, very powerful. And then I talk about great political seductions, how John F. Kennedy seduced the American public in 1960, one of the great um, seductive campaigns in politics. And I talk about great marketers in the past who did these incredible campaigns. It's basically about the soft sell as opposed to the hard sell. And that kind of skill applies to almost every aspect of, of, of human endeavor right now. Wow. That is truly fascinating. I'm sitting here right now wondering why every politician hasn't, maybe they have bought your book before they run for office because I feel like they would all win. Well, um, you know, we live in a media-saturated age. I mean, everybody knows that it's obvious. But you have to have a presence on television. You almost have to be an actor in life. And that was what made Reagan very successful, obviously. But John F. Kennedy, it's a little-known fact, was obsessed with Hollywood. His father had been involved in the film business. And he modeled himself after certain actors he admired particularly Montgomery Cliff. And he learned how to present himself on television and create a very charismatic kind of persona. So in politics, how you present yourself, the degree of conviction that you have, how you excite people and appeal to their emotions is like the whole game practically. 
And some people are just terrible at it. It's not who they are, but you can turn even blandness into something kind of seductive. And I talk about that in the book. Yes. I, I find it interesting, too, that it would seem to work, especially when giving speeches. Is that true? Yes. So the whole art of seduction, to, if I had to summarize it in just one sentence, is the ability to get outside of yourself and into other people, into a man or a woman, or into an audience or a group of people or voters, right? So the degree that you can not be thinking of yourself and your own needs and interests, but of what they are want, what they're hungry for, you're going to be successful. So when you're giving a talk, you're not just absorbed with your own ideas, your own thoughts. You're thinking about the specific audience you're dealing with and where they're coming from. And then when you're in the, giving the talk, and I've done this myself, you have to be in the moment. You have to make eye contact. You have to make people feel like they're alive, that they are part of their participating in, in this talk, right? And that you're, you're with them. You're emotionally identifying with them to some degree. And then the other aspect is one of the types of seducers of the nine types I mentioned is what I call the charismatic. And we all are kind of fascinated by the idea of charisma, why some people have it and some don't. And I kind of break it down and I explain what charisma is. But essentially, charisma is the sense that a person is full of this conviction, is full of this incredible confidence, right? And they just can't control it. It radiates. It makes their eyes come alive. It makes their voice animated. And so when you give a talk and you, people get a sense that you're full of this emotion, but you're able to kind of channel it, you're not just ranting, right? You're, you're kind of restraining all of that emotion in your trying to hit certain things that make everybody common aspects of, of human life. It's incredibly powerful. So the ability to, to kind of, I compare it to, it's like a light that's inside of a person. You don't see the light, but it animates all of their gestures, their eyes, their hands, etc. And it makes that kind of sense of confidence is incredibly contagious. It's why we like to be around charismatic people because they make us feel confident and more alive. So true. I love that. From what I gather from your work, understanding anti-seduction is just as important as understanding seduction. Is that true? Yes. I mean, one of the types is what I call the anti-seducer, which is what you don't want to be, right? That's like the last thing you want to be. And so it's kind of the reverse side of seduction. So people who are so wrapped up in themselves that they're always thinking about themselves is very anti-seductive. People who talk too much, who don't seem interested in your ideas, people who kind of preach to you about who you should be, because seduction is not really a realm of ethics and morality, I'm afraid to say. You know, they say all's fair in love and war. That's kind of the same thing in seduction, right? So to preach and moralize and tell somebody, you're a bad person, you need to behave more this way or that, that's a killer in any kind of relationship or any kind of seductive situation, right? And so I maintain everybody has these kind of anti-seductive tendencies and you need to be aware of them, you need to root them out. So for instance, to take um, a classic kind of male problem when it comes to seduction. It can, and it can also happen to women too. The man 
is nervous because he he's does he's not sure whether the woman's interested in him, and he's he wants to please her, he wants to impress her, but he's constantly anxious and he's thinking of what he can say to excite her or interest her, and he's full of these insecurities, but he's not aware of how much those insecurities the other person, the woman in this case, can read it, and being around insecure people is kind of unseductive. It kind of makes you feel awkward and insecure. It doesn't work very well in this realm, right? And so the problem is, is they're thinking, they think that they're thinking about the other person they're trying to impress them, but really they're only thinking about themselves and how they're being perceived. And if they could just shut up that internal dialogue and think of the other person and get inside their skin, get inside their world, what I call enter their spirit, then suddenly you have a power. But being insecure and self-absorbed is probably the number one anti-seductive trait. Oh, and I oh, I, I really don't like being around people like that. <laughs> I really don't like it. And you know what I don't like either? You touched on it. I really don't like it when someone that really doesn't know me will start telling me what I need to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you don't even know me. <laughs> I know. And, you know, they, they typically, they call that mansplaining, um, you know, so men maybe are a little more guilty of that than women. It's a sense of, I'm so superior. I know exactly what you, but really what people are doing is they're projecting their own insecurities onto you. They're really reflecting about their own things that they are bad at their own weaknesses, but they don't want to confront that. Instead, they put it all on you. And it's, it's incredibly off-putting, I know. Oh, it is. The opposite of that is to not judge people, right? To be very indulgent. And one of the seductresses I talk about in the book is a woman, Pamela Harriman, in the 1950s, who was a great seductress. And what men loved about her is she was completely non-judgmental. Anything they did or said, she was fine with. And you don't know how powerfully seductive it is to be around someone who doesn't judge you, but accepts everything about you, even your flaws. So I just wanted to bring that up. Oh, I love that. That's so true. When you're not judgmental and you just want to be around someone to have enjoyment, yeah. just to have a nice time with someone, you're not going to yeah. judge everything about them, their looks, their the way they speak, and they feel it. That's important yeah. when they don't feel judged and everything, the guard is down and you can just enjoy yeah. each other's company. That is so powerful. Yeah. And it's rare. If you think about it, what's so um, kind of hard about life sometimes, particularly in social media, is people are always judging you and they may not say it, but they're looking at your images on Instagram. And sometimes they're leaving really nasty comments on YouTube or wherever you have a YouTube channel. You know, and everyone in this in this world is so judgmental, right? And they're always picking on you, and you feel it in your day to day life. And to encounter someone who enters your world and is the opposite, they accept you for who you are. How rare does that happen in life? It's pretty damn rare, right? Just that kind of openness. I accept the fact that you, Robin, are not perfect. You're a human being. There are aspects of your character that you know maybe if you were an angel you wouldn't have but you're not and i love you even for your flaws nobody in the world can resist that kind of attention 
That's right. You know, when I read sometimes negative things people will write about me and say about me, and I really am happy and glad that I have the ability to say, you know what? You don't even know me. So you've made the decision you don't want to like me and you have a right to your opinion. So that's okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Because I know the truth. And it just brings such a pleasure to my life to be able to truly not be affected by someone that doesn't even know me when someone says something negative. It's such a relief. Yeah. And it's not easy sometimes because some of the comments are very biting and people know how to kind of pick on your insecurities. Often the best thing to do in this world today, which we can't do without social media, is to not read your comments. You know, I find sometimes I get no value out of it. So it's good in the life to have people who criticize you so that you don't get grandiose, so you don't think that everything you do is wonderful. But they have to be people that you trust who don't have an ax to grind. Hopefully your spouse, maybe sometimes your children, colleagues, and especially friends. Okay, they criticize you, they tell you something's wrong. All right, you know it's coming from a good place and it's okay. But what value do you get from some some messed up guy who's really lonely and insecure sitting in his in his little room thinking that he's so powerful when in fact he's not at all, saying all these kind of bitchy comments just to put you off your game? I sometimes, I learn to just ignore them completely and don't give them the power that I'm even going to read it there. There's their stupid comments. That's so true. I seldom read them, but sometimes I do read them. And I'm just interested sometimes in in someone's opinion of the greater picture. And then I'll see something like that and I'll go, well, bless your heart. You know, I know you wrote that thinking it would upset me, but it's just not. Well, more power to you. That's not that's not easy to do, but that's really, really admirable that you're able to do that. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You know, we do two things on this podcast always. And the first one is we always have a drink of the day. And we choose a drink of the day that applies to our topic and our guest. And so sadly, we're not together, but we still can do it and honor you. So for today's drink of the day, we're keeping it simple. We're talking all about seduction. So what's more seductive than a smooth, full-bodied glass of red wine? 
time. Oh, I wish I was there. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, next time uh, we get together, yeah, next time we'll do the same thing. I have a glass yeah. of 2017 Napa Valley Red Blend alongside a plate of berries. Let me show you. Drizzled with wow. dark chocolate sauce. Oh my God! I'm so. I'm so upset that I'm not there. I'm oh. so sorry I didn't come. I feel terrible. Oh, well, we're definitely going to plan this again. I think okay. that this combo is a great surprise for your partner after a long day. It's a simple setup that shows you care while also allowing you to enjoy something together. And of course, Philip doesn't drink, so I'll just surprise him with the chocolate berries, which I think also works well. So in honor of you and your beautiful work, Cheers. Cheers, yes. I'll yeah. take a sip because I've I'm, always heard that when you say cheers to someone, you must take a sip. Okay. I'm, I'm taking also... a sip in spirit. Okay, yeah. great. That's very appropriate because I love red wine too. And, and seduction is all about the language of the senses. It's not about anything necessarily intellectual, which is a little weird to write a book about it but it's learning the art of appealing to senses, the thing that had nothing to do with words. You know, it's his wife, gifts and flowers and other things and, and people's body language, the tone of their voice are so seductive. And red wine has that kind of earthiness and has a very kind of seductive appeal. It also makes you drunk as well. So <laughs> it's a very appropriate choice. <laughs> Thank you. I just love to see a glass of red wine with a meal and with friends. I think it's just a beautiful look as well. Yeah, when I was young, I worked in a vineyard in France. I picked grapes in Burgundy area where they make um, Bordeaux. Bordeaux is actually the region, which is my favorite red wine. So I got this, the feeling of actually picking the grapes and seeing them being processed and then drinking it like the next day. Oh, And wow. it was the most amazing experience. You know, I've been... I'll never forget how, you know, the whole experience was just wonderful. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That area yeah. is so beautiful. We've traveled there yeah. before, and that sounds like a wonderful memory. People yeah. often feel that it's difficult to be seductive after you've been with a partner for a long time. Can you speak yeah. to that? Yes, I have a chapter. It's one of the last chapters in the book, which is dealing with what I call the after effects. So let's say you successfully seduce someone and your goal was to have a relationship. Sometimes your goal is not to have a relationship, it's just to have some fun if you're very young. But sometimes you do want a long-term relationship. So the question arises, do I still use these seduction tactics after I've been in a relationship? And my point is, you need to use them occasionally. It's not like you're practicing them every day because it's tiring. And then the other person will kind of get a, a strange sense, like, why are you trying so hard? We're in a relationship. But the opposite is even worse. The opposite, and this is what happens in most relationships and why it go, they go flat, is either both people or one of the partners stops trying. They take you for granted. So originally, when, when things were just in the initial phases, you kind of dressed nicely because you cared about how people looked at you. You took him or her to a nice restaurant, cooked a nice meal, right? You went to places that had a little had a bit of theatricality to them, you know, um, you know, not just ordinary life, right? You went on special trips, you gave special gifts, 
And then you suddenly stop. It all stops. You end up giving kind of generic gifts, the things that are expensive, but no thought behind them. You stop doing the little things that mattered so much earlier on. So my point is, that's what, and, and frankly, that's what women complain the most about in their relationships, that their partner has stopped trying. It's not that they expect you to be on your game every day, but on birthdays, anniversaries, even when there's no occasion, just every couple months, you do something like that. You take them to a place that's special. You, take, you give them the sense that you are not taking them for granted because that is the worst, most anti-seductive feeling of all. They've become so familiar to you that you, know, you no longer think of them as you did when, when it mattered to you when you were trying to seduce them. And that feeling of being taken for granted is the worst of all. So you need to keep using some of these tactics, you know, like there's those tactics about surprising the other person. You occasionally strategically need to surprise them with a, a trip or a gift or an evening. And not all the time, but just every now and then. Yep. I totally agree with you. You know, one thing I'm really proud of when it comes to Philip and myself is that through our 45 years of marriage, we've always made it a point to put each other first and know our priorities and always remember that what's most important. So he's always doing little things for me that he knows mean a lot to me. And so we had a lot of rain yesterday and he leaves the house 30 minutes before me. We go to the studio. He started the car because it was freezing. So it would get warmed and pulled it up out of the rain. So I thought about that as I was driving to the studio and I got there and I told him, I said, I just want you to know that I thought on the way to the studio today, how happy I am that I'm married to you because you made sure I could drive to the studio today safely and warm. And I just want you to know, I I thought about that. And he looked up from his desk and he had this big smile on his face. And it, it meant a lot to him that I told him that. And then... That night, last night, I knew he would be coming in and going back to his office to sit at the desk and prepare for his shows. And it was so chilly back there. So I went back and I lit the fireplace so it would be Uh warm for him. And he knew I did that for him. And when I walked back there to tell him that dinner was ready, it was time for us to eat or whatever, he said, thank you so much for lighting this fire because it sure makes a difference. So he, you know, he recognized that I had thought ahead and did that for him. So it does make a difference when you're always thinking of little things to do for your partner and when you they comment on it. Yes. I mean, you know, we have this idea that seduction or, or what we're talking about there requires these grand dramatic gestures, you know, these expensive gifts, these travels to exotic locations. But it's the little things that count the most that show that you're thinking of the other person. And I want people to think of it in this way. You know, the word seduction has a slightly nefarious quality to it, like it's maybe even negative, like it's a form of manipulation. But I want to think you think of it at the opposite. So when your husband is doing that with the car, what it means is he's sending a signal that he's thinking about you, right? Right. He's getting outside of himself and his own needs, and he's he's thinking ahead of what your life and and how it could be difficult for you, and he's helping you, and you do the same for him, right? And when you do that, when you get outside of yourself and you think you're focused on what the other person wants and needs, it's the best self-therapy in the world, right? Because we're all so self-absorbed. We're all so wrapped up in our own worlds. And to get out of it, 
and to think of another person and to think of what they need or what they may want or what will appeal to them or will give them that kind of excited feeling is, a, is actually really good for you as well. It's, it's better than a hundred sessions with a therapist, quite honestly, right? Because it gives you a nice feeling and it makes you feel, get outside of your own self-absorption as well. I so agree. So since you brought this up, let's shift to your views on self-mastery and how it relates to our relationships. In your book, The Laws of Human Nature, you discuss how people can become con artists with themselves. Can you explain this? Well, you know, the laws of human nature, basically I'm saying this is who we are going back hundreds of thousands of years. And some of them can be our self-absorption, which I've already talked about, our propensities to be irrational. Some of our propensities are tendencies to be envious of others, being aggressive and passive aggressive, kind of the dark side of human nature. And the main thing is, the main point I'm making in this book is your tendency is to deny that, is to say that has nothing to do with me. It's always the other person who's the narcissist, but not me. It's the other person who's aggressive. It's the other person who's self-absorbed. It's the other person who is you know, envious. But no, I have none of these qualities. And that is, you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. We're all cut from the same fabric. So if it's embedded in human nature to feel envy, which I maintain is all of us feel it, you have to then stop denying it. You have to come to terms with the fact that you have the same qualities as everybody else. So being aware of who you are, being aware of even your flaws and your negative tendencies is actually incredibly liberating. And it means if you keep denying that you're self-absorbed, that you have narcissistic tendencies, and we all do, you can't possibly correct it. You can't possibly change some of these things and become more empathetic and more outward directed. But once you sit down and you realize, as I really make you when reading this book, that you are self-absorbed, that you are a narcissist, and I've certainly put myself in the category, now you have the ability to begin to change that, begin to work on yourself. So self-awareness and being aware of all aspects of your character and nature is like some most important thing. It also gives you the power to change some of the negative patterns in your life. And we all have negative patterns. We all have habits we'd like to get rid of. But we're not being honest with ourselves. We're not truly confronting where these, we think it's other people or the world that's causing it, or it comes from ourselves. And if you can see that you are the source of these patterns, you are the source of choosing wrong partners, of getting into bad relationships, now you have the power to change that pattern. So that's that's the importance of that. Yes, that's so true. When you when you admit that you're the common denominator in all of the bad relationships you've been in. Yeah. That's definitely. so important. I imagine that self-mastery would give someone the tools to identify toxic relationships quicker. Is that true? Yes, um, definitely. I mean, if you're if you're um, always like um, unaware of yourself and you always think that it's other people, right? Then you think that you're not vulnerable to other people's kind of manipulative tendencies. But if you can look at your weaknesses, if you can look at the fact that if someone enters your life, let, let's just break it down to this very simply. Toxic people 
which I said before could maybe be 5% of the population. It might be actually a little bit higher, particularly today. Let's say it's like 8%, they enter your life. Toxic people don't come with a big billboard or a big sign saying, I'm toxic. They've learned how to disguise it. They've learned how to be charming and pleasant. That's the strategy they developed since they were six years old so that, they, so that people will not avoid them and run away from them. So they can be very charming when you first meet them and very kind of charismatic, et cetera, right? If you aren't aware of your own tendencies to fall for people like that, if you're not aware of your own insecurities about you know, getting attention from other people and they come with you, let's say a man kind of love bombs you in the first few weeks, but he's actually a raging narcissist and it's gonna be hell in a relationship. If you don't realize that you are vulnerable to that kind of attention, that you have a weakness to yourself, then you're not going to be able to defend yourself against it. You won't have any of that self-mastery. But if you have a solid sense of people um, are not necessarily who they appear to be often, and I know that I have this weakness, and somebody enters my life and they're giving me too much Early on, they're, they're saying things that they're too strong. They're so much in love with you. They want to marry you tomorrow. I got to step back and go, I'm too susceptible to that. There might be something else going on there. And with that degree of self-control, you can then judge them for who they are. Maybe they are legitimate. Maybe they do really love you, but maybe they don't. Maybe they are planning. Maybe they're just very manipulative people. So you want that degree of self-awareness to know that you were susceptible to that kind of con artistry. We all are. Wow. It's brilliant. Do you think that the power dynamic in relationships should aim to be equal? Or do you think that sometimes one person has the upper hand and then sometimes the other person does? Yes, often the dynamic will flip back and forth in relationship. Those are often the healthiest relationships. Because quite honestly, when it comes down to the, the level of sex, sex and the physical aspect, of a relationship, somebody who's a little more aggressive or powerful, there's there's a kind of a charge to that and it can be very exciting, right? Doesn't necessarily have to be the man, although it can often be, but it could be the woman as well. And that kind of creates the initial excitement between the two. But the person who's like sexually in charge isn't necessarily the person who's emotionally in charge. And those, that dynamic can flip back and forth and back and forth several times. And if it does do that, if one person kind of dominates in one area, but the other dominates in the other, then that relationship tends, I think, can be healthy and can last a long time. And there's a certain equality to it. But I know this is going to be controversial and people may not like what I'm about to say, but I think if things are too equal, if people are just like, you and I are just the same. There's no difference between us. Men and women are exactly the same. I don't think that's being honest and I don't think that's very seductive. So you have to understand that not everything is equal, that the man in a relationship, if it's straight, will have certain tendencies and certain strengths. And I, the woman, I will have other strengths and other things. And it can be equal on that level. But if it's, one, if it's a relationship where one person has all of the power, then that's not healthy either, and that's not going to last. So, and that's not usually the case. Those kinds of relationships don't last. Or if they do, they become very abusive. Yes, yes. I completely agree with you on that. I don't think 
anything you just said is controversial at all. I completely yeah. agree with you. I'm just curious. Do you believe in soulmates or love at first sight? Well, it's certainly uh, um, a phenomenon. And um, I related to a, a, per, a, a psychologist who I loved a lot and had a big influence on the laws of human nature is a man named Carl Jung. And Carl Jung had this concept called the anima and the animus, which I talk about in one of the chapters in the laws of human nature. And basically what it means is for a man, it's an anima and for a woman, it's an animus. And where this comes from, it's like a figure inside your brain that is how you relate to the opposite sex. It's like your ideal of what a woman would be. That's the anima. It's like your ideal of what a man could be. That's your animus, right? And a lot of this stems from things in very early childhood that you're not aware of, right? It's relationship for a man to his mother, usually often, not always. For a woman, it's maybe her relationship to her father. It could be to siblings. But somehow in your brain, a crystallization of kind of the ideal person of the opposite sex. And often this ideal figure inhabits your dreams. It's very common because I'm a man, so I can say personally, that anima figures, well, you'll always kind of dream about them, right? So if you meet somebody who has that kind of unconscious, wow, they're like that ideal that I have, maybe you're not even aware of it, that could tr definitely trigger love at first sight, you know? So it's like they're, you're meeting your ideal. It's like a figure that you've almost been dr dreaming of, and it can have an incredibly powerful effect on you. Sometimes it's not healthy. So if like Jacqueline Kennedy, I talk about in, in the laws of human nature, right? She had issues with her father. Her father was a little too much physical with her. It, he, didn't, he didn't abuse her, there wasn't incest, but he was a little too intimate with her in a way, just psychologically, right? So throughout her life, she was attracted to men like that, you know, men who were very powerful, right? But who, who kind of had that kind of father figure. And she chose often the wrong type. Her father was a major womanizer. And throughout her life, she was attracted to men who were incredible womanizers, like JFK himself, and like later, like Aristotle and Nassus. So that was her animus. And sometimes it can be, it can get you into problems. But when you meet a figure like that in your life, yeah, definitely it's going to be love at first. It'll have a very powerful effect on you. Wow, that is so interesting. Well, I love your quote about taking risks in your career. You say, with success, you become conservative. You've never become conservative, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, it's one, I have many weaknesses and many flaws that I'll admit to, but that's not one of them. Because I've always had the idea that what makes me successful, if I've ever had success in my life, is being true to myself, is being unique, is being different, is even being a little bit weird. You know, so if you've read, seen my first couple books, you might hate them. You might think they're evil or dark, but you'll say, I've never seen a book like that. I've never read a book like it because it's very weird structurally. It looks different on the page. I've got things on the side margins, different colors, different kind of words, forming objects, etc. It's a strange looking book, right? So each time I write a book, I say, I have to feel excited about the project. I have to do something different. 
I can't get conservative. I can't just keep repeating the same type of book over and over and over again. I have to change things up. I have to surprise my audience. And some people get a little angry and sometimes my publishers wonder like, I don't know if that's the right book for you to write, but I'm, I always want to be different. I always want to surprise myself as well. And I've learned that being afraid of failing, being afraid of trying something different is the worst feeling of all because it'll actually lead to failure, you know? And so my decision to be bold, you know, I think is sort of the source of, of a lot of my success and why my books have a slight kind of cultish appeal to them. Oh, I have to tell you, I love your books. That's nice to hear. I'm glad I asked you that question because I loved your answer. And I love knowing that about your books and, and that's how you feel about them because I love being different as well. And I love change. Yeah. yeah. So for my next book, I'm doing something that I've never done before, completely different. Um, it's, it's a slightly more, the word is not, I'm very comfortable with, but it's a slightly more spiritual book. It's a book about what I call the sublime, you know, um, and it, it has to do with experiences and ways of looking at the world that will completely shake you up and make you aware of how insanely wonderful the world is that we live in, you know. And it's related a little bit to the near-death experience I had three years ago. So it's not a kind of book that I've ever written before. So, you know, I'm taking a big risk there, but I, I have to do that every time. Oh, you must. You have to. When will the book be out? It'll be another two, three years, probably. I cannot yeah. wait. So we've come to a point in the podcast where we do the second thing we always do with every podcast, and that's play a game. Do you like playing games? Oh, sure, sure. Oh, good. So we create a game that is related to our podcast and our guest, and the name of this game is Power Play. Okay. So, okay, for today's game, we both have two cards next to us, each containing a phrase related yeah. to today's conversation. I'll start yeah. with my first card. So I look yeah. at the phrase and I have to help you guess what's on my card by giving you okay. clues. But the hard okay. part is that I'm only allowed to give you five words. So we have to be thoughtful in our clues. So I have not seen the card until now. Okay, so I have my first word here. I get to give you five words to try to get you yeah. to know what's written on here. Okay, my first uh -huh clue is opposite of sexy. Oh, opposite of sexy. That's three words I've given you. Uh, well, it's like the anti-seducer. Um, That's it. That's it. That's it? Yes. Well. Now you um, look at your word and give me some clues. Okay. Um, true love. Oh, true love. Uh, true love would be your word could be, uh, oh, well, I think I know what it is. Is it soulmate? Wow. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, very <gasps> we, good. Oh, that's so fun. We were just talking about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so here's my second word on my card. Aware of yourself. So I use three words. Aware. Secure. Well, confident is one word, but... Um... Um, it's not charismatic or charisma. No. Do you have one more word? Inner peace. 
secure, aware of yourself is all about the art of knowing yourself. It's not self-aware. I mean, that's that's too much. It's part of it. Um, self, you, uh, you said part of it, self. Self-confidence. Um, no. Self-knowledge. No. It's self-mastery. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm I so bad. That. Well, you're... You're ahead. You're ahead. Okay. Well, my next one is actually four words. It's not just one word. Okay. Tell me the clues. Okay. Um, restoring the original flame. Oh. Oh, restoring the original flame. Uh, restoring the opposite of no. uh, flame is the spark. Uh, so it's Very good. You're renew, good. renewing the spark. Or uh, very close. Uh, re, uh, the spark. Very I know it's close. The spark. Keeping the spark alive. Keeping wow, up the you're great. We talked about wow, it. We just talked about so it. Much, you're so much better at this game than I am. Wow. Oh, my god. You gosh. win. Well, next time we do this, yeah. I'll have a yeah. better game. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. I will, too. I promise. Well, so sadly, that brings us to the end of the episode. And I thank you so much for being here today with me, Robert. Before we wrap up, though, I need to ask you one final question. Sure. So this podcast is all about sharing life-changing secrets. So do you have one major secret that has dramatically impacted your life? Well, the thing is, uh, as I said um, before, three years ago, I had a stroke and I came this close to dying. Um, you know, basically my wife saved my life. She was with me. I was driving my car. And um, what it's taught me, my secret is this can happen to anybody because I was, you know, the prime of my life, very healthy. Everything was going right. And it's made it so, you know, things are very difficult. I can't walk, etc. My main secret is do not take for granted what you have right now because it could be gone tomorrow. Don't take for granted the people around you who love you. Don't take for granted your children. Don't take for granted the job that you have, the career that you have, the degree of security you have. Don't be always looking for something better because something a lot worse could happen tomorrow, right? Because life is inherently insecure. So sit down today and actually look at the things that you have and appreciate them so much more because they can be taken away from you. So like I had this life before my stroke where everything was kind of wonderful. You know, I I was able to swim and do my bicycling and, you know, everything was pretty wonderful, a blessed life. And then it was suddenly taken away from me. And now I look back and I wish that I had been more appreciative of what I had and sat back and realized that it could be gone. So I want other people to have that awareness that, you know, particularly nowadays with COVID, it can be, no matter if you're in your 20s, it can be taken away from you tomorrow. So just, it's a, actually a beautiful thought to be aware of what you actually have now and to appreciate it to the fullest. So that that's kind of my secret. Robert, that was so powerful and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that with you're us. You're very welcome. I cannot wait for your book to come out. I'm so happy uh, you're going to write the next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I mean, I'm, I appreciate the fact that I didn't lose, I didn't have brain damage so that I can at least write another book. So yes. I'm blessed in that sense. 
Wow, that too was beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm sorry this has to come to an end. You've been phenomenal. You've been uh, such a blessing today. I thank you so much. So can you now please tell the listeners how to find out more about you online? Well, the one place where you can get all of the, where everything is aggregated is Robert Green Official. Um, robertgreenofficial.com or at Robert Green Official for my Instagram and my Twitter accounts. But when you go to the website, robertgreenofficial.com, you'll see links to all my social media, to all of my seven books and to all of my interviews so you can access them all. So that would be the one place I would go to. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Secret Squad, as always, head on over to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for blogs, recipes, and behind-the-scene photos and videos. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.